This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Good morning, Chris. Great to talk again. Interesting times as usual. This morning, I want to talk about a couple of things that have been going on in Ireland. One, we got the end September exchequer returns yesterday. And secondly, the central bank's latest quarterly economic bulletin has been published this morning. So I just want to take listeners through the key elements of those two releases. Significant stuff going on in some ways on international markets this time last week. We were about to go into the depths of an incredible crisis in the UK in the aftermath of the mini budget. But UK markets have settled down somewhat since then. Um, And indeed, over the last couple of days, we've seen international equity markets perform quite strongly. So I'll be asking you the question in a few minutes. Is it all over? Are we back to normal? Stuff going on on the interest rate front still with interest rate moves in New Zealand and Australia. A lot to talk about as usual. The first thing I'd like to do is to talk about the exchequer returns. Got the end September numbers yesterday. A story of incredible buoyancy just continues. 57.9 billion collected in tax revenues. 
that's up a phenomenal 26.2% from last year. That's equivalent to an increase of 12 billion. That is an incredible story of tax revenue buoyancy. And it goes to prove a point I've made many times to you, the importance of having a functioning economic model that generates the tax revenues that are then used to fund public expenditure and so on is incredibly important. And have no doubt about it, the 11 billion package we saw delivered in the budget last week is directly as a result of this tax revenue buoyancy. As usual in September, corporation, uh, well, as usual in in terms of recent trends, uh, corporation tax continues to be the star performer, um, twice as high as the equivalent month last year. In the first nine months, 13.8 billion collected, up 71.7%. That's growth of 5.8 billion. So the corporation tax bandwagon continues to roll on. And the two of us have discussed many times over the last year or so about the importance of corporate earnings in the United States. When they're strong, it immediately tends to reflect itself in strong corporate tax revenues in this country. So it's 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 a phenomenally positive story. I suppose one of the concerns you might have is that in the event of a U.S. recession, or a significant slowdown in the coming months. And we're seeing some indications of that um, with a weaker labor market report that you're going to talk about out of the States. The risk, of course, would be that if the U.S. economy slows significantly over the next six months, and if U.S. corporate earnings start to go in the other direction, is there a possibility that we see the flip side, that this starts to reflect itself in weaker corporation tax here? Um, Remains to be seen. But um, I think the point is that Department of Finance last week forecast just over 21 billion in corporate tax revenues this year. The likelihood is that it's going to surpass that because November is an incredibly important month. If we were to see 22, 23 billion being collected, um, I wouldn't be shocked. And if you to put that in context, 10 years ago, we were collecting 4 billion in corporation tax. A very, very positive story. The other two key elements of the tax revenue, um, income tax, 21.4 billion, up 15.9%, very strong, reflecting the continued strength of the labor market. And VAT then, which is a reflection of consumer spending in the main, 15.3 billion collected, up 22.9%. So all in all, It's an incredibly strong story of tax revenues. And I go back to the point I made that the 11 billion budget package that was delivered last week, which in absolute terms was the largest package we've ever seen, is being facilitated by this ongoing growth in tax revenues. The second issue I'd like to cover is the central bank. It's latest quarterly economic outlook out this morning. And I guess it's kind of typical of official forecasts we see The next six months is going to be challenging because of elevated cost of living pressures, because of elevated cost of doing business pressures. Growth is expected to slow significantly over the next six months. But then during 2023, um, inflation is expected to start to ease back significantly and that this will provide the stimulus for a gradual recovery in the second half of 2023 into 2024. It just seems perfectly symmetrical to me, so that would always concern you a little bit. But having said that, I think the near-term prognosis is correct. Rising interest rates, the cost of living pressure, 
the uncertainties about the supply of and cost of energy are definitely going to take their toll on consumer spending and business investment spending. I guess the only doubt is when they start to recover and if they start to recover as 2023 progresses. In terms of the official statistics, I mean, modified domestic demand, which is a better indicator really of what's happening on the ground in the economy, it is projected to grow by 6.4% this year. 6.4% growth in modified domestic demand this year, 2.3% next year, which does represent a significant decline and then a recovery to 3.3% next year. Um, I think an interesting feature of this forecast from the central bank and the forecast that accompanied the budget from the Department of Finance last week are all anticipating a very, very modest increase in unemployment, averaging 4.7% this year, averaging 5.1% next year. Given the many economic headwinds are out there at the moment, if the Irish labour market does manage to deliver that sort of performance, it would represent an incredibly positive outcome. And I think would say a lot about the the nature of the Irish labour market and the resilience of that labour market. Uh, the final thing I would say is that while the central bank in the bulletin doesn't provide quarterly growth forecasts um, in the press conference yesterday, it's reported this morning, at least in the media, that the central bank economist was suggesting that he wouldn't be shocked if there was a couple of quarters of negative growth, uh, which would signify a technical recession. That's not their central scenario, but it's laid out there naturally as a possibility. Uh, but, But overall, based on the exchequer returns and based on the central bank's latest prognosis, you know, it's a reasonably positive story for Ireland. And given all of the extraordinary external headwinds we're facing into at the moment, this sort of outcome would represent a very, very good one. One number, you spoke about a lot of numbers there. One number I want to highlight this morning, which I think is really interesting, is the gas price. Now, obviously, natural gas prices are of relevance to absolutely everybody in the world at the moment. The um, gas price coming out of Europe this morning, as we're speaking, is €155.50. Do you remember where that peaked? Just in case you don't, I'll tell you where it did. It peaked at 350 back about four, six weeks ago. So gas prices are really on the way down again. That may or may not continue. Lots of things drive this. The most important thing that's going to drive it, not the only thing, but the most important thing over the next few months is going to be the weather. One of the things that's driving it down at the moment is that it is both windy and mild across important parts of Europe. But it is great to see it coming down. And I think that's obviously something that we should welcome, we should monitor, and we should note when it does interesting things. Because it's fallen a lot this week in the last few days. It's down about 4 or 5% this morning. It was down 10% on Monday. So these are big moves in gas prices. One of the things that, of course, that had happened last week to put gas prices up was the sabotage, we think, of undersea pipelines. And there's lots of worries growing that we are, we do have extreme vulnerability, not just in terms of energy security, but also internet security, if you like. And the way in which there are so many different undersea cables that if Mr. Putin is sabotaging undersea pipelines, he could have a go at these undersea cables, which have no security whatsoever attached to them, either when they're on the seabed or indeed when they come and make landfall. I read something this morning that did you know that there are Russian ships 
lolling about in the Irish Sea going up and down with lots of drones underneath them for some strange reason. And so people are concerned about that and what that might mean for the seabed between these two islands. Yeah, there's interesting things going on in commodity markets and also interesting things going on on the seabed. One of the things that's happened as well, of course, is that we've had an, the most humongous bounce in equity markets this week. The S&P, the US equity market, was up 3% yesterday. And bizarrely, this is the reason I suppose why I'm drawing attention to it. Normally, I wouldn't comment on day, daily moves in equity markets, which are pure noise rather than signal, is that the rise yesterday was largely because we had some economic bad news, or at least on the face of it, to most human beings, it would look like bad news. It was all about the labour market. There are two reports on US labour markets. There's one very important one due on Friday this week called the non-farm payroll. There's another one called JOLTS. I won't go into the details, but essentially it told a story about an unexpected weakening of the labour market, less people moving jobs, less jobs available. And the market thinks, ah, oh, great, that means the Federal Reserve won't be putting up interest rates again, or at least won't be putting them up as much as we previously thought. So bad news is good news. And in the looking glass world of financial markets, off we go. The equity market thinks that the Federal Reserve is going to bail them out. You can probably tell by my tone that I have my severe doubts about that chain of reasoning. I don't know. What, what do you think, Jim? Do you think that bad news is good news or do you think that we're just looking around too many corners? I think bad news is good news at the moment because I, I, I felt for some time equity markets wouldn't bottom out until the markets were convinced that inflation had peaked and that the interest rate cycle was close to peaking. That is a possible interpretation of what we've seen over the last couple of days. It's not one I'd, I'd agree with. I, I don't believe, you know, we're, we're at the approaching the top of the interest rate cycle yet. I don't believe we can say with any confidence that inflation is close to peaking. But I think that's, um, I guess, how sort of jumpy and flimsy the markets are at the moment. Um, another I guess, event yesterday that did help market sentiment. Um, the other side of the world, Australian interest rates were increased by a quarter of 1%. Um, the markets had been expecting a half percent. And this was taken by the fickle markets as a sign that perhaps the global tightening of interest rates is now starting to moderate. Um, not a view I'd share. As I say, this morning, the New Zealand Central Bank took its rates to a seven-year high um, a 50 basis point or a half percent increase in rates. So I think central banks still have a lot of work to do as they see it. Uh, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank and the US Federal Reserve are likely to increase interest rates more aggressively over the next two or three months. And um, so I, I just wouldn't be convinced at this juncture that the markets are actually peaking out. And um, indeed, I know this morning in the first hour of trading in Europe, um, there's a lot of red numbers up there again, signifying that this rally has ran out of a little bit of steam. Chris, I'd like to ask you about what's happening in the UK. This time last week, we described a pretty calamitous situation where the Bank of England was forced to intervene aggressively to buy 30-year gilts um, to save the pensions industry or sort of save the pensions industry. Um, sterling fell to the lowest level um, we've ever seen against the dollar. Um, and this morning and the last couple of days, UK guilt yields are down. Sterling is significantly stronger against the euro and against the dollar. And um, 
can we confidently say that the U-turn undertaken by Quasi Cartang and Liz Truss has actually saved everything? Are we back in clover again? Well, I certainly hope so, because I'm going to the States in a couple of weeks' time. I'm actually going to be going to Las Vegas. Um, you can probably Good imagine God, Chris. that uh, I'm not much of a gambler, but uh, well, that'll be an interesting experience. So I certainly hope the pound is going to buy a few more dollars. I haven't bought mine yet, foolishly, perhaps, given that I've always been bearish of the pound. I should have put my money where my mouth is. There's so much going on, Jim. The the, the bust up in the gilt market last week was a very technical thing. And I don't want to go into the details here. I'm not sure I fully understand them myself. It is very instructive because one of the things that I go on and on about on this and other podcasts is how everything is connected to everything else. This trust, quite rightly, is saying that she wants to generate economic growth in the UK. Quite rightly, she and the new chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, are saying that Britain has been stagnating since 2008 which on a per capita basis it has been. I and mean, it couldn't be starker, the difference in terms of the experience over the last 14 years, decade and a half, between Britain and Ireland, is that you basically have had no growth in the UK and you had plenty of it in Ireland. Um, yeah, I know, I know, Chris, if I may interrupt that, um, I, I didn't realise that the UK is the only one of the G7 economies where GDP is currently lower than it was pre-COVID. There you go. Um, a, a statistic to back up my my assertion. There are lots and lots and lots of reasons why growth in the UK has been weak and lots of reasons why growth has been very strong in Ireland. We only have an imperfect understanding of why growth does what it does in the UK and or Ireland. It's a very tricky subject. So if I went, for example, to the British government and said, this is what Ireland has done policy-wise over the last 30 years, if you replicate it, you'll have an Irish growth rate. Well, actually, no, you won't, because these things are very circumstance specific. And what works in one country often doesn't work in another. And often, as I say, we don't actually know why growth does what it does. It's one of the great mysteries in economics. We have reasonable ideas, not saying we know nothing, but we don't have perfect knowledge. What we do know is the sorts of policies being pursued by Ms. Truss and Mr. Kwarteng usually don't lead to economic growth. One of the things that you could do is, for example, I've seen it done many times over the last few days, is put a chart of high growth, the growth rates of countries over time and their tax rates. And there's no correlation between high tax, low growth, high tax, high growth, low growth, high tax. It doesn't mean anything. You can be a high tax, high growth economy. You can be a low tax, low growth economy and all points in between. One does not guarantee the other. You need to do lots and lots of other things. One of the things that we need, we know you need to do to get economic growth is that you need to invest in your economy, which is why we economists bang on about things like infrastructure, roads, hospitals, factories, buildings, houses, you name it. Infrastructure is usually where we're at when we, we start thinking about economic growth. One of the reasons why China has had a massive economic growth rate for years is because it has been investing in housing. One of the reasons why China now has a real problem with economic growth is it has a housing bust and it overdid it. What's the connection to all of this guilt, liability-driven investing pension fund thing? Well, a couple of decades ago, some bright sparks in the UK decided that the pension industry, which traditionally in all countries invests in the economy because pensions are long-term liabilities and pensions need long-term assets, 
during a period of equity market weakness, somebody had this bright idea that pension funds should no longer invest in equities, should no longer invest in companies. And in Britain, it was should no longer invest in British companies in particular. And what they should instead do is buy bonds, which is not investing in the economy, most definitely not. Unless, of course, the government is using that money to invest in the economy on the pension fund's behalf, which I can assure you is not what they did, because governments just splurged the money up against a wall and wasted it. So the pension funds became sellers of British equities, sellers of real assets, sellers of British infrastructure, sellers of British roads, ports, companies, you name it, they sold it, and they bought government bonds. So what that meant was, for a period of time, they were selling assets, equities, that had a dividend yield, paid them every year, something like 4%. And they bought government bonds, often something called index-linked bonds, yielding minus 2.5%. So they were selling these really positive-yielding assets for negative-yielding ones, assets that would make the money over the long term and lose the money in the short term. And the only way they could make that stupid, insane, mad financial decision add up was to use something called leverage. Now, leverage is sometimes a good thing. Actually, it's probably the only way that anybody can ever get rich quick in the world. And usually behind every great fortune is A, a crime, and B, leverage. (laughs) Are you saying and or and or? I said usually. Usually a crime and leverage. Not always. Not all fortunes are based on crime. Please, lawyers, don't, don't have a go. Um, And leverage is what you do when you buy a house with a mortgage. You put a little bit of money down and borrow a huge amount of money for the rest and you gradually pay it back. And that more or less is what happens when anybody uses leverage anywhere in the financial system. They don't actually put a lot of cash down when they make these investments. They're using humongous amounts of borrowed money. It's what led to the great financial crisis of over a decade ago. And what these pension funds do because of then strange financial engineering decisions that they have been making is use leverage to try and justify their financial decision making. And behind every single financial crisis in history is leverage blowing up. And that's what we got last week. We just got leverage blowing up. Usually there are subsidiary stories behind financial crises. It was you have people who bought stuff, bought financial products that didn't understand them, bought financial products that they probably should never have bought in the first place. I'm thinking about all those collateralized debt obligations, mortgage obligations, loan obligations, all those weird acronyms. We've got another one now, LDI, involved people being sold stuff by the financial services industry who have clearly incentivized to sell stuff and invent new weird products. And I think that we will be looking at LDI very seriously again and thinking, is it the most appropriate thing? Not just for the individual pension funds. The big beam I have in my bonnet about LDI is that it absolutely mangled, contributed to the mangling of the British economy because it deprived the British economy as a source of long-term investment capital, which other countries do have. So I think when this trust goes on about managing economic decline, which is what has been happening in the UK, part of the story behind economic decline is that this one and a half trillion, so I'm not talking you know, small amounts of money here, this one and a half trillion industry has essentially been divesting itself from the British economy. And that has contributed to the very lackluster performance of British GDP per head and all those other statistics. I could go on. Anyway, so what we say about Liz Truss's plans for economic growth going forward is because she doesn't tackle these and plenty of other reasons why growth has been poor in the UK. 
now start banging about education, training, skills, the state of things outside the southeast of England. The 45p tax rate thing, which is probably something that's registered in, in Ireland that um, Kwasi Kwarteng, you turned on because he was abolishing the 45 pence in the pound tax rate. In Wales, where I spend all the time these days, there were 9,000 people who pay that rate, Jim. Okay, Rao. So when, you, when you're outside the south of England, uh, southeast of England, the top rates of tax don't matter so much because there aren't anybody who pays it. It's a very, very lopsided economic situation in the UK. And that's why Boris Johnson God love him, wanted to do levelling up this lot. Don't even pretend that anymore. So we have an extraordinary situation. At the root of all of this is politics rather than economics, although the two are always connected. The Conservative Party has gone through David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, and now Liz Truss. Four prime ministers in just a few more years. And I think that reveals that the Conservative Party is essentially ungovernable now. Nobody could manage it. It's, it's a party riven by division. Uh, we had Suella Bravham and the Home Secretary yesterday talking about a coup being launched by members of the Conservative Party against Liz Truss. Bizarre, weird stuff. I think that also is a reflection of the country that the divisions that have been present for a long time but were opened even wider and driven wider by policy, uh, both during and after the Brexit referendum, are behind a lot of this. So I think that there's a lot of trouble in, in both politics and economics. She's going to do nothing for economic growth. So I do not think, this is a long-winded answer to your question, that the bounce in sterling and the falling guilt yields, it means that the story is over. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, I mean, Chris, you say what we saw last week was leverage blowing up. And um, if leverage blows up, um, <laughs> it's unlikely to return to normality this quickly. The, the Bank of England has definitely created a backstop by agreeing to step in last week. Well, it had no choice to buy gilts aggressively. Will that backstop have to remain in place for the foreseeable future? Well, we, we've got the situation now where Kwasi Kwarteng has promised the people, and more importantly, the markets, that he will produce a plan for fiscal sustainability over the medium term. In other words, he's not he's going to start announcing unfunded, massive tax cuts and expenditure programs. Um, so far, so good. He, that, which, that means that the independent British budget watchdog, the Office for Budget Responsibility, set up by a previous Conservative government, um, is going to, this time around, when he produces his next fiscal event, do their own 
fact-checking, if you like, um, verification. And he's got a number of choices then because it's going to be really tricky because they're going to say that without spending cuts and or a much higher growth forecast, your fiscal plans are unsustainable, or at least they are going to involve debt going up rather than down, not least as a proportion of GDP. So he has a number of choices. He could announce big spending cuts, which we're thinking that he may well do, particularly in terms of welfare. We have this strange situation in the UK where we have one of the least generous welfare systems in the developed world. Look at our welfare system compared to yours, for example. And um, full employment, people like Suella Braverman talking about there being too many people on welfare and having the benefit street culture. It's real weird, wacky, ultra right-wing stuff makes no sense, is not backed up by the data. What we have next then, the I think, will be that the Treasury, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng's Treasury, will say, we disagree with the OBR. We think that we will have a higher growth rate than they do, and that's how the numbers will be made to add up. Whatever method he chooses to um, cir- square the circle disagreeing with the OBR, because I do think that's going to be a problem, I think that will reveal or get lead to more problems in the markets. I don't think that any of this is over by any means because a lot of what they're doing makes no economic sense whatsoever. The only way it is all over is if the U-turns that we've seen this week continue and that they, they just revert back to business as usual, trying to muddle through, which is the traditional British way of doing economic policy. And provide and if they do just go back to trying to muddle through, then Britain will just be then another market and whatever happens in the world economy. And then all this stuff, they've tried to blame the Federal Reserve for what happens next. And that will then actually for once become true because Britain will just be, be like other countries and buffeted around and being the small open economy that it is, that's where it should be. So I think that that's the best case I can make for you is that they just revert back to the way they used to do things, muddle through, and then we just go looking at the Fed and the ECB for what happens next in the UK. Okay, and and I know I noticed the latest opinion polls showing Labour having leads of thirty eight points, um, and I think the last time Labour had that sort of lead in an opinion poll was just before Tony Blair was elected. What changes under the Labour Party? I mean, do do you th- okay? You say that the Tory Party is ungovernable, and I guess by definition that means the UK is pretty ungovernable at the moment. In the event of Labour taking over in the next couple of years, and based on the opinion polls, as I say, that's highly likely. Does anything change? I mean, the Labour Party strikes me as a party also that is pretty ungovernable. We still have that strong rump of Corbynistas who are never happy that Kirsch Dharma got the job and that they got rid of... uh, Corbyn. So is is it just a continuation? I mean, would you have a very fatalistic view on where the UK goes long term? Yeah, because this decline has been going on for decades. Mm. And the only thing that arrested that decline, actually, was membership of what was then called the European Economic Community back when it joined back in 1973. Britain had been in gentle, genteel, relative economic decline for decades really since, um, certainly since the end of the Second World War, probably since the 1920s. There were lots of structural reasons for that, which haven't gone away. You could do something about those structural reasons, but you've made them worse by leaving the EU, by messing up relationships with your biggest trading partner. 
if I was Keir Starmer, what I would do is probably what he's doing, which is not talk very much about Europe, because that is the big dividing line in the UK, and still is and will be for a long period of time. But I would then quietly, without announcing it, without talking about it very much, actually, rejoin the EU in all but name. Yeah. And you could suggest, actually, that there's a hint of that about what this current lot of idiots, the Tories, are doing, because there's this Macron-led initiative called the European Political Community, Mm. which um, she's going to this week. I think its first meeting is in Prague. That's right, yeah. uh, if, If there are warmer noises um, uh, being expressed out of London about rebuilding gently relationships with Europe. That'll be a good thing. And Are we have Steve Baker apologising to Northern Ireland. Remarkable, eh? Yes, abs- absolutely. Really- ma- 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 mind you, some of the zealots in the party came out and um, rebuked him over that. But it was still per- perhaps a change in mindset. I was speaking at an event um, here in Ireland in recent days and I was addressing the failed state narrative that some people throw out here. And j- just looking at what's happening in Ireland, you know, a pretty decent growth performance for a prolonged period. Uh, tax revenue binds very strong. We were able to fund a massive fiscal package last week without engaging in any borrowing. Um, it's an economy that's virtually at full employment, 4.3% unemployment rate. 2.55 million people in employment, the highest level, level ever. Massive inward migration into the country, not just of um, non-Irish coming back, coming into the country, but also many Irish who left are coming back. I could go on and on, but it all doesn't add up to a failed state. Um, I, I totally accept, um, and I covered this also, that housing is clearly a significant challenge for us at the moment, as it is for most other countries. Um, The health service isn't exactly what you'd expect from a modern first world health service, but also that's a problem that many other countries are experiencing. But on an overall basis, on balance, um, Ireland is doing pretty well at the moment. And um, I would hate to see this whole failed state narrative starting to gain currency um, and then start to become self-fulfilling um, as is, is definitely what's happening in the UK at the moment. So um, I, I think we should look across the water and learn valuable lessons. We really do not want to go there. Well, yes, and we've talked about this many times and I've been talking to lots of different people in Ireland, just as you have in the wake of the budget, uh, lots of people for some strange reason, are interested in, in what we have to say, um, which is nice. And, and thanks for thanks for being asked. It, it's great. Um, and the, 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 the idea that I've been pushing, and I know you have too, is that if you want uh, to have something like the UK, elect a shower of populists who really have a, a more ideology than any idea about how to run things, and what happens next is usually pretty predictable, actually. And that's what you got. If you want a bunch of centrist pragmatists to run your economy in a particular way, do what you've been doing. Um, but of course, that just whenever we talk about these sorts of things in that sort of way, we always get the what about housing? And um, that is the Achilles heel of the coalition. And um, uh, we, we, we acknowledge that 100%. And we've talked about that endlessly. One of the things that I would 
direct people to is the comments section on our Substack site, where there has been a, quite an extensive discussion about this across several podcasts, but also our most recent one, where um, a, a lot of people have weighed in on this issue. And I think that it, those discussions have actually been quite, quite enlightening. Okay, Jim, I think we're probably coming to the end unless you've got something else on your agenda. No, I think that's it, Chris. Um, in- interesting stuff. And um, be- believe me, here on this side of the pond, um, everybody I talk to, top of their tongue at the moment is what's happening in the UK. It's Indeed. quite extraordinary. Um, it's it's just unbelievable to see uh, a whole system blowing up in front of your eyes. So listen, great to talk. Let that be um, a warning to you. Indeed, indeed. See you, Jim. See you, bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.